Well, I don't know what the weather's like where you're at. I know Chris in New Zealand is currently enjoying summer, but here in Wyoming, at least while I'm writing this, I'm looking out the windows at fresh snow, and we've got wind chills well below zero degrees Fahrenheit. Not that this weather deters me from getting outside, it just requires more clothes and a bit more planning. But one of the things that I love about being outside in the fresh snow is seeing all the footprints of critters that you might not get to see in person. Now, in the last episode, I told you about some small mammals, moles, voles, and shrews, which can be active in the winter, but also often stay under the snow, and you might not even know they were there. Continuing on that theme, at least a little bit, for this episode, I'm going to tell you about another small mammal, the lemming, that spends the winter under the snow, and also about one of its primary predators, the snowy owl, and the relationship that ties the two of them together. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, and this is the Dispatches from the Forest podcast. and shrews, which I talked about in the last episode, you've probably heard of lemmings. But other than a reputation for following each other blindly to their doom, which just for the record is a myth, and I'll talk about that in a little bit, you probably don't know much else about them, do you? Lemmings are another small rodent. In fact, they're closely related to voles, and they live in the northern hemisphere, generally in the Arctic tundra. There's 19 species of lemming, and size-wise, they fall somewhere between a hamster and a guinea pig, five to seven inches long. Appearance-wise, they kind of look like these animals, too. Round shape, short ears and tail, and a stubby snout. But unlike other rodents, whose color tends to make them inconspicuous, and that tend to try and hide from predators, The brown, white, and black coloring of lemmings stands out quite a bit more, and they're known for becoming aggressive towards predators and even human observers, emitting a high-pitched scream and showing their sharp front teeth. Now, this is thought to be a form of aposematism, something I've talked about before a warning to potential predators that trying to turn the lemming into a meal may not be worth the price. I'm not sure how well it works, though, because lemmings still have plenty of predators. Both arctic foxes and snowy owls rely heavily on lemmings as a food source. This reputation for fierceness might be at least partially responsible for one myth about lemmings, that they literally explode when they get angry. Now, contributing to this myth may be a misinterpretation about their populations exploding, often followed by a precipitous decline, or dead lemmings that have been visited by scavengers looking like they've burst. But, except in the lemmings video game, they don't, in reality, explode. Lemmings are primarily herbivores, feeding mostly on moss and grass, but they also forage under the snow for berries, leaves, shoots, roots, and bulbs. They have a flattened claw on the first digit of their front feet that helps them dig in the snow. And not only do they dig through the snow for something to eat, they construct large tunnel systems under the snow as a living space, the way other rodents, like, say, a groundhog, would dig a burrow in the dirt. 
Living under the snow helps protect them from predators. And just like the groundhog, a lemming's snow burrow will have rest areas, nesting rooms, and even a bathroom chamber. Nests are constructed out of grasses, feathers, and sometimes muskox wool. Sounds cozy, doesn't it? In the spring, lemmings tend to migrate to higher ground, living in the mountain grasslands or boreal forests, and breeding continuously until they return to the tundra in autumn. Now, as I mentioned a little bit ago, lemming populations can explode. Take, for example, the Norwegian lemming. Like their vole cousins, if conditions are favorable, they can breed year-round, and they reach sexual maturity quickly, less than a month after birth. That means they can produce a litter of six to eight young every three to four weeks. It also means that every three to four years, the population reaches an unsustainable level and crashes. In the 1500s, this boom and bust cycle led people to believe that lemmings fell from the sky during stormy weather, either spontaneously or carried by the wind, and then died when the grass sprouted in the spring. But of course, the most persistent myth is the one that says lemmings are either A, suicidal and will jump to their doom en masse off cliffs, or B, will just follow each other blindly, even if it means going to their death. So let's explore this myth a little deeper. Lemmings are generally solitary, so as the population grows, stronger lemmings drive the weaker and younger lemmings off long before food gets scarce. The young lemmings disperse in random directions, searching for vacant territory. In places where geographical features limit this disbursement and channel them into a relatively small area, large numbers can build up. Overcrowding and limited resources leads to social friction, distress, and eventually sort of a mass panic where they flee in all directions. But even when that happens, they don't just run blindly to their deaths. The truth is that during these mass migrations, many lemmings simply don't survive. First of all, these migrations are a boon for predators. But secondly, and probably where this myth originated, many lemmings do end up drowning, but not because they're despondent or get stuck in a herd mentality. Lemmings actually have waterproof fur like their muskrat relatives, and they can swim. But if during this mass migration they attempt to cross a body of water that's larger than what they're physically capable of swimming across, well, there you go. But the myth is a persistent one. An article in the August 1877 issue of Popular Science Monthly suggested that these lemmings were attempting to swim to the mythical submerged continent of Lemuria. Theoretically, located in the Indian Ocean, a very long way from the lemmings' native habitat. Not a very science-y conclusion, if you ask me. Now, sadly, this myth was also perpetuated by none other than Walt Disney. Disney's 1958 documentary, White Wilderness, you can't see it, but I'm using air quotes around the word documentary, lemmings are shown hurling themselves off cliffs into the sea and drowning. It turns out that this footage was faked, and horrifyingly so. In the now infamous footage filmed in Canada, as the lemmings are falling off the cliff, we hear the narrator say this. In this land of many mysteries, it's a strange fact that the largest legends seem to collect around the smallest creatures. 
One of these is a mousy little rodent called the Lemmy. Here's an actual living legend. For it's said of this tiny animal that it commits mass suicide by rushing into the sea in droves. The story is one of the persistent tales of the Arctic. And as often happens in man's nature lore, it's a story both true and false, as we shall see in a moment. Ahead lies the Arctic shore, and beyond, the sea. And still the little animals surge forward. Their frenzy takes them tumbling down the terraced cliffs, creating tiny avalanches of sliding soil and rocks, and seemingly indestructible lemmings. final precipice. This is the last chance to turn back. Yet over they go, casting themselves bodily out into space. All seem to survive the ordeal, for now they begin to swim. Not toward land, strangely, but away from shore, toward the far horizon. Others find the beaches by roundabout ways, and they too plunge into the waves. It's not given to man to understand all of nature's mysteries. But as nearly as he can surmise, it would appear that the lemmings consider this body of water just another lake. And if it's a lake, then it must have a farther shore. And so they strike out boldly. But gradually, strength wanes. Determination ebbs away. And soon the Arctic Sea is dotted with tiny, bobbing bodies. So is acted out the legend of mass suicide and destruction of a species it would seem to be. Except that nature, in her infinite wisdom, has spared a few. Back on the Arctic plain, there remains the small handful that did not make this fatal journey. And in time, new generations will take the place of those that have been lost. And yet, when the population cycle mounts to another peak, the lemming legend will be told again and will come to this same amazing climax, a final rendezvous with destiny and with death. But they didn't cast themselves into space. They were dumped from the back of a truck. Disney paid indigenous people to catch live lemmings, a dollar a lemming. Oh, Walt, Walt, Walt. When I told my 14-year-old about this, she and I had the exact same thought. What would Snow White say? And just to add insult, White Wilderness won an Academy Award. I think Gomer Pyle said it best. Shine, shine, shine. Okay, so let's talk snowy owls, one of the lemming's major predators. Snowy owls are probably the most unmistakable owl in the world. They're large owls, averaging about two and a half feet long, with a wingspan of around five feet. As their name would suggest, they're almost pure white, though males tend to be more completely white overall, and females have more stippled flecks of dark brown in their plumage. Snowy owls have longer feathers than other owls their size, and bright yellow eyes. They're truly beautiful birds, and when one shows up in a place where they're not normally seen, an event called an eruption, that's with an I, not an eruption, it usually draws bird enthusiasts from near and far. 
A couple of years ago, a snowy owl made an appearance on the National Mall in Washington, D.C., and during its visit, it made headlines and people were driving from several hours away just to catch a glimpse. I'll talk about why snowy owl eruptions occur in just a minute. Generally, snowy owls breed in the open Arctic tundra of Alaska, Canada, Scandinavia, and Russia above 60 degrees north latitude, which is roughly the southern border of Alaska or the same latitude as Stockholm, Sweden. Snowy owls make a lot of vocalizations. As many as 15 different calls have been documented. The most common vocalization is described as the crew call. In the thin Arctic air, the snowy owl's calls can be heard at least two miles or three kilometers away and may carry over six miles, 11 to 12 kilometers. For males, it's thought that this call serves as both a way to warn away other males and to advertise to females. When it comes to breeding, snowy owls are usually, but not always, monogamous. Males define their territory with singing and display flights. These flights involve exaggerated wing beats with a shallow, undulating, bouncy courtship flight. The male will drop to the ground, take off again, and glide gently back down. When courting, the male also frequently carries a lemming in its beak, bow with a cocked tail, and then flap his wings emphatically. If the male doesn't perform this ritual, the female may refuse to mate. Egg laying is typically from early May to early June, and not too surprising since we're talking about the Arctic tundra here, it's done on the ground. But snowy owls don't build nests. They just lay their eggs right on the ground. And they lay rather large clutches too. Seven to nine eggs is the average, but it can be as many as 15 in extreme cases. Eggs are laid at two-day intervals. Incubation begins with the first egg and is done by the female only. The male's job is to bring food, and excess food is often cached nearby. Beginning incubation with the first egg means that the chicks hatch asynchronously, usually between one and three days apart. It also means that the size difference between siblings can be quite large. But unlike a lot of other owls, the chicks of snowy owls don't behave aggressively towards each other or try to kill each other. The official term for this is siblicide, probably at least partially because they need to conserve energy. At about two weeks old, the chicks will start to walk around the nest site. And when the oldest chick is three weeks old, the female will start to hunt too, and both parents will feed the chicks. Chicks leave the nest site by the age of four weeks, even though they can't fly yet, and their father will make fresh prey deliveries directly on the ground near the wandering young. It's like DoorDash for owls. The chicks find safety in rocks and vegetation and are also protected by their parents. Snowy owls are known for aggressively defending their nests and their young, so much so that other species of Arctic nesting birds, like red-breasted geese, have been shown to reproduce more successfully if they nest near snowy owls. At around six weeks, the young can fly, and by eight weeks, they can hunt on their own. Average lifespan in the wild is about 10 years, but snowy owls can live to 25 or 30 in captivity. Until fairly recently, very little was known about where snowy owls went in the winter. They tend to be nomadic, and they'll range quite far, and winter sightings outside of their breeding range tend to be sporadic. 
But with the advent of lightweight tracking devices, we're starting to learn more. And the answer is, well, it depends on the individual bird. Some stay on the breeding grounds all winter long. Others go exploring, sometimes flying from Alaska to Russia and back. One bird was recorded traveling 600 miles in a single day. But they're not just wandering aimlessly, they seem to know where they're going and can remember very specific locations with remarkable accuracy. There have been tagged snowy owls that have returned to the same telephone pole in a winter territory they hadn't visited in six years. Now, interestingly, when scientists started tracking snowy owls using radio transmitters, they noticed something strange. Some snowy owls would migrate north in the winter. Not only that, but the data showed that these owls were spending a lot of time out over the sea, surprising for a terrestrial small mammal-eating specialist. Satellite images showed they were spending their time on the edges of sea ice near open water patches called polynainas. These patches are created by tides and currents and tend to persist or recur from year to year. They also attract large numbers of seabirds. Apparently, the owls were preying on birds that were much larger than themselves. Now, while most owls are nocturnal, hunting at night and sleeping during the day, snowy owls are not as rigid when it comes to hunting, which makes sense, really. During the Arctic summer, the sun barely, if ever, sets. Think of the challenges that snowy owls have when it comes to hunting. They're in a completely open, treeless area where at the height of summer the sun doesn't set, and at the height of winter, it doesn't rise. It's thought, because snowy owls have less acute hearing compared to other owls, that prey is usually detected by vision and movement. But that said, studies have shown that they can detect prey up to a mile away. Now, snowy owls don't have much advantage on the landscape, but they use what they do have expertly. They'll sit completely still on a rise or on a perch if they can find one, for a long time, waiting for prey. And they employ several hunting tactics. Sometimes when prey is detected, the owl takes flight with a sudden, surprisingly quick acceleration and may engage in a brief pursuit, often ending in what's described as a high-impact wallop. In high winds, snowy owls are capable of hovering briefly and dropping down on their meal. Another common technique is called the sweep, where the owl flies by and grabs its prey without stopping. In the winter, they might plunge up to eight inches into the snow to catch something underneath. So, what are they eating? Well, like most owls, they primarily eat small mammals and birds. Outside of the breeding season, they might even eat carrion. Altogether around the world, more than 200 species have been documented being eaten by snowy owls. And that includes, of course, lemmings. But here's the thing. Snowy owls have a very special relationship with lemmings, by which I mean that during the breeding season, the diet of snowy owls is 99% lemmings. A single snowy owl can eat 1,600 lemmings in a single year. Now, remember how lemming populations undergo a boom and bust cycle? Well, this means that during good lemming years, snowy owls also experience a population boom. And during low lemming years, well, they need to find another place to breed or skip nesting. This leads us back to the snowy owl's nomadic lifestyle. One study showed that snowy owls in the Canadian Arctic 
traveled up to 2,500 miles before deciding on a nesting site. From year to year, the nesting sites of female snowy owls averaged 450 miles apart. What makes this all so amazing is that snowy owls are able to quickly assess lemming numbers in a particular area and respond, but how they do that remains a mystery. At first it was assumed that as they traveled around, they stopped to prospect for lemmings, but the tracking data didn't really support that conclusion. Somehow, some way, snowy owls just know where to find good populations of lemmings. Maybe not a boom, but enough to feed themselves and their chicks. And that leads us back to those snowy owl eruptions. Now again, it used to be thought that these eruptions were the result of starving owls searching desperately for food, that they moved south and showed up in unexpected places because it was a lemming bust year. And with other owl species, a lot of times that's the case. A depletion of food resources leads to the owls moving locations and they end up somewhere unusual. But recent evidence suggests that the opposite may be true for snowy owls. Lemming booms lead to snowy owl booms, which leads to more snowy owls out flying around and turning up in unexpected places. All of this makes estimating snowy owl numbers difficult to say the least. In good lemming years, they can appear to be very abundant. And given their arctic breeding habitat and wandering nature, it's hard to get an accurate count. As recently as the early 2000s, their population was estimated at two to 300,000, but with better data and a greater understanding of this mysterious owl, it's now thought that those estimates were way too high. Now it's thought that there are between 14,000 and 28,000 breeding pairs worldwide. And in lemming bust years, the number of breeding females might drop as low as 1,700. In North America alone, it's thought that there's been a decline in snowy owl numbers of anywhere from 52 to 64 percent since the 1960s. And of course, not surprisingly, climate change is thought to be the primary driver of the snowy owl's decline, partially due to a reduction in sea ice, which we now know snowy owls rely on heavily, but also due in part to the impact it can have on lemmings. In Greenland, for example, climate change has caused a possibly irreversible collapse of lemming populations. From 1998 to 2000, lemming numbers in Greenland declined drastically by about 80% of what they once were. Greenland's remaining lemmings seem to no longer be adhering to the normal population cycle. Correspondingly, there's been a 98% decrease in snowy owl productivity in Greenland. Other lemming predators like stoats and arctic foxes, which are less dependent on lemmings, have also declined but not to the extent of the snowy owl. In 2017, the IUCN listed the snowy owl as a vulnerable species. If we want to keep seeing these beautiful and mysterious birds, we need to take action to protect their habitat. And on that note, we'll bring this episode to an end. Thank you for listening. Make sure to like and subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can support the podcast by becoming a patron. Subscriptions start at the low price of just $5 a month, and after three months, you get some cool merchandise. More subscriber perks like access to webinars are on the horizon, so get over there and get her done. You can find all that information at patreon.com forward slash dispatches from the forest. 
If you're feeling generous and you want to make a one-time donation, you can do that through PayPal. Dispatchesfromtheforest at gmail.com is my PayPal address and a great way to connect with me if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions. And last but not least, we have merch. Check out our merch store over at Cafe Press. That's cafepress.com forward slash dispatchesfromtheforest. So many options. Go see for yourself. For additional content, follow Dispatches from the Forest on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and YouTube. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, reminding you to go outside and get dirty. Dispatches from the Forest podcast is a production of Dispatches from the Forest and may not be used or rebroadcast whole or in part without express written permission.